welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 107. Now, this is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital, and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugu, and with me is Musa Kalenga. What's up, bro? Hello, Africa. Tell me how you doing. I'm fine. How are you? Excellent, man. Uh, thank you for joining us once again. Um, Always a pleasure having you on the show, and uh, definitely shows in terms of our, in terms of our listens. Uh, people seem to be taking to you quite well. Tell that to my wife. <laughs> this guy, she doesn't believe in a nice guy, so I'm, I'm appreciating the love. Thank you, guys. It's really good. You've got the data to prove it too. Now, on this week's show, we'll give you updates on how two of Africa's more embattled mobile telcos are coping with their legal troubles, and talk about why the CEO of Africa's largest tech firm by market cap, Nasbers, is. Being accused of blowing roughly $25.6 billion of shareholder value. That's all next, but first, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by GoDaddy. Now, GoDaddy makes registering domain names fast, simple, and affordable. They're the world's largest domain registrar, and they're trusted by over 13 million customers around the world. They provide everything you need to get your business set up online, including award-winning 24-7 support. Now, to save yourself 30% on a new domain name or to use any of their other services, go to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. Again, that's trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech to save yourself 30%. We start with some big tech news involving Etisalat, Nigeria. Now, following reports that negotiations with its creditors had broken down, Etisalat, Nigeria has slammed what they're calling dodgy media coverage of their troubles. Now, they've come out saying that they're not under any investigation by the Economic and Finance Crimes Commission. In fact, in a statement, they came out saying that... Um, they're, in fact, well on their way to paying off the debt they owe and that everything is going swimmingly. They owe the likes of Access Bank, Zenith Bank, Guarantee Bank, uh, PLC, as well as First Bank and others. I suppose they also have kind of a few things that they've highlighted as not all being bad news. So the acquisition of the 4G license in Egypt, the a license in Togo, um, and uh, obviously a universal license in Ivory Coast. So the company is growing, and uh, amidst the bad press, it seems like they're still trying to acquire quite aggressively. And also claims that there's a 5G um, that is going to be first in the region uh, after they've finished conducting some live trials. So I suppose it's not all doom and gloom, but good luck and all the best. It is a lot. And of course, if you're worried uh, about being their customer and, and thinking maybe they won't be in business anytime soon, well, uh, Tony Ojobo, who uh, directs their public affairs, has assured customers of the network that they're doing everything within their powers to ensure that they stay online and that they continue to deliver the very best service they possibly can. And we're certainly rooting for them, and I'm certainly sure that their mothership in the UAE is rooting for them as well. Now, moving on to another big, um, oh, diabolical piece of news, really, um, from the last sort of 10 days or so. Naspers, well, their CEO has been accused of mismanagement. After nearly four years of being at the helm of Africa's largest tech company by market cap, um, the CEO, Bob Van Dyke, is being accused of blowing approximately $25.6 billion of share hold of value. Now, a certain Albert Saporta, a director of the Geneva-based investment advisory firm AIMNR, has written an open letter to the NASPER CEO, Bob Van Dyke. You know, these open letters are, you know, low blow, always. Um, yeah, basically, he's accusing him of destroying shareholder value since his appointment in 2014. Basically, what he's saying is minus uh, NASPER's investment in Tencent, which we know is just an incredible 
cash cow. Uh, minus that, he reckons that Nasperis has been losing money at a diabolical rate. Yeah, and he says that uh, he won't disclose the size of the stake that supporter has, but um, the value of the destruction that he refers to um, is quite uh, is, is quite huge. So, ten cents relative to Nasper's market capitalization has grown from ninety to one hundred thirty percent, and that's accelerating. But he implied that the market value of Nasper is dozens and, and dozens of other investments um, has declined by a value of about thirty four billion to negative three hundred uh, billion, which is phenomenal if you're looking at numbers. So, this can be simply calculated by taking the value of ten cents from the Nasper's market cap, um, and in other words, the last three years three hundred thirty four billion of shareholder value um, has been destroyed, according to him. Yeah, and basically all he's proposing is that Nasperis spins off uh, 10 cent, basically sells that off. Uh, he reckons that it really isn't fair for shareholders to have to access the incredible value that 10 cent delivers via this rather shoddy machinery <laughs> by his estimation. He reckons that uh, Nasperis should do them all a favor, spin it off, and die a slow death in a corner somewhere, but let those who want to carry on, you know, investing directly in Tencent do so. Um, apparently, this is something he's done before, uh, you know, in other markets. Uh, he's quite famously uh, lobbied support against in another group uh, and forced them to, like, uh, spin out a, a stake in another more viable company. Uh, it, it seems um, uh, this is his MO, this uh, supporter fella. He's done this before. Um, it might be founded very much on the fact that he is a, he's a supporter of being able to have a little bit of a contrarian view on market value. Um, the interesting thing would be what uh, what gets released as a statement from Bob Van Dyke's quarters, which actually they're playing to an argument that Dambisa Moyo often makes in terms of what she feels is wrong with global economics and in the corporate sector. She reckons that there's a, uh, as she puts it, a short-sightedness in terms of how reporting is done and in how expectations are placed upon corporations to deliver financial results as, as such. Um, uh, you know, C-suites around the world sort of uh, play a short game instead of thinking long-term in terms of sustainability. And of course, Naspers basically accusing supporter of having a short-sighted view in terms of the value that uh, Naspers is on its way to providing its shareholders. And uh, there's no doubt, I mean, recently their financial results have sort of supported supporters' claims that uh, Without Tencent, Nasperis is in some trouble. But the fact is, they do have Tencent. And what Van Dyke and his team are arguing that, listen, we, we know what our problems are and we are on our way to solving them and creating value for all our shareholders. And there's really no reason for us to unbundle at this point. Um, supporters' argument is based on kind of a moment in time, which is probably not inaccurate. But the, the response is to say we're on a journey to creating shareholder value. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it is a fair um, a fair response and I think it's a good argument. The, I suppose, it, it, you know, time will tell. It's only left to be seen whether they'll be able to achieve some of the things that they said they're going to achieve. We have reported on the show a number of times that um, Nasperis has has been hurting for some time. They've been struggling just as much as, say, Jumia and Conga and the rest, uh, Ringia even, to try and make e-commerce work on the continent. They've got a number of different uh, verticals, even in, in cable television, for example, where they have diminishing uh, revenues, and it's really struggling uh, to find its feet. Um, and, and right now, Tencent seems to be its guiding light. Um, as to whether or not shareholders agree with Van Dijk and his team's assessment of the situation or what Saporta is saying remains to be seen, we'll definitely keep you on top of this one. Another biggie in trouble, MTN, what else is new? This time it's trouble in Turkey. Uh, hot water again, this time uh, Turkcell, Turkey's biggest telecommunications firm, is accusing uh, MTN of unlawfully taking their rights to the Iranian GSM license. And uh, this is 
after many, many years of delay, uh, Turkcell suing MTN for $4.2 billion. And uh, now the case is all set to be heard in South Africa's South Gauteng High Court. Yeah. Wow. Now, uh, Turkcell's legal and regulation executive, Sir Demir, um, who's also the vice president, said the company had a very strong claim. And the claim against MTN, its subsidiaries, its chairperson, uh, Mr. Amtleko himself, and who was chief executive at the time, and former MTN director, Irene Shanley. So everybody is going down. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and really, they're, they're not letting this one go. Um, it's, it's sort of been simmering under the surface for a while. Well, this one will see its day in court, it appears, and uh, we'll definitely let you know if they do win this case, they could very well uh, regain the, the the license they lost to MTN. Um, but yeah, it, t- troubled times for Iran at the moment. That 4.2 billion essentially represents what they consider to have lost in terms of revenue because you know they, uh, as they put it, unlawfully lost out this deal to to MTN. So we'll definitely be watching for uh, movement in this regard. Yeah, and I, and I really am interested in that statement unlawfully because essentially what they're implying, I mean, you can't just lose a license. So it's a bribery accusation here, you know, which I think is a, uh, is a, is a huge deal. But uh, as you said, let's not make any conclusions until the, the, the day in court. But uh, innocent and no proven guilty, isn't it? Uh, isn't that the way they put it? So. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. And now, Kenya, we actually want you to give us a holler. Um, have any of you been on your brand new railway line between Nairobi and Mombasa? It costs you guys. $3.2 billion. You better be enjoying that thing. <laughs> yeah, you better be on that gravy train. <laughs> so, Kenya, tell us. We want to know. Uh, give us a shout on, on social media, on Instagram and Twitter. Of course, we're at African Roundup. Um, on Facebook, we're facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. And of course, drop us an email if you prefer at hello at African Tech Roundup.com. Uh, we want to know how much you're enjoying the new railway line and whether at $3.2 billion you feel it's a, a serious value add or as some people are feeling it might have been a fairly expensive deal to cut um, courtesy of uh, everyone's friends at this point uh, in China. Um, yeah, some people complaining, uh, certainly some voices within finance and uh, economics in Kenya complaining that this deal did not suit Kenya. It will be many, many, many years before that money is recouped. And um, the Chinese, no doubt, will be banking it all the way. Absolutely. And I'm just uh, having a look at this beautiful red and white uh, train that was uh, inaugurated at the port city of Mombasa um, that is now creating a kind of a five-hour journey between the uh, Madaraki Express, which is called the Freedom Express. And that's going to be taking half the time to drive between those two cities. And I think that's a, that's a good thing for consumers ultimately. But at that, uh, at that price tag, um, there's always going to be question marks, and especially because it's funded by our friends uh, from the East. That's true. Not just because they're from the East, though. Also just because apparently um, it's being perceived as easy money to do things that Africa could be doing smarter, uh, perhaps through, you know, more thoughtful application and that kind of thing. And is the economic case for this railway line being made, um, particularly at this cost, is, is, is it all there? Well, we want to know from you. Give us your take, Kenya. Yeah, and it's been dubbed the Lunatic Express because of that price tag. But there's a, there's a theory that it's part of a kind of a master plan around connecting East Africa um, in terms of being able to create a standard railway uh, between uh, Uganda, Rwanda, and South Sudan, as well as Burundi and Ethiopia. So I think the economic value may be realized quite far into the, into the future, especially if you're trying to be able to connect these places and being able to either create uh, transport corridors or make it easier for people to move around. So once again, very long-term view on hopefully 
hopefully a solution. Um, but the Lunatic Express is up and running. And, and at least for now, Kenyans must be enjoying it. Yeah, tell us exactly how you feel. Have you been on it and what do you think about it? That would be nice to hear. Show. And now to Francophone Africa, where Iroko has plotted its next expansion move. Now, now on the surface, it certainly doesn't seem that um, Jason Njoku is keeping to his... Uh, his Lagos first focus in, in this context. Um, look, he, of course, on his blog claims that um, he is still very committed to that notion. However, um, he is also not averse to good opportunities to grow, perhaps uh, in, in areas that, as he admits on his blog, he should have long realized value as a, a businessman. And so the Canal Group and uh, Iroko are launching the Iroko uh, streaming video on demand service for French-speaking Africa. In fact, they've already done so. So what they're doing is essentially bringing 1,500 hours of, uh, quote, affordable premium Nollywood and telenovela content to millions of Francophone entertainment fans. You, you know what I find interesting more than the news itself? Congratulations to Iroko. We hope you do well and all this and, and so on and so forth. That said, this sort of mystical divide between uh, Anglophone Africa and Francophone Africa, I find this, I find that, that very notion quite interesting. And I'm purely based on language, right? So, and then I suppose implications on culture. I mean, it's a huge opportunity. I think a lot of uh, tech companies, businesses, enterprise um, really have got a, you know, a huge hurdle to get around when they're talking about Francophone Africa because, as you said, it's like a mystical divide. But I think the opportunity is phenomenal because if you're able to provide solutions in a language that is uh, easily consumed by the Francophone population, um, I really think you can double your market share in that part of the, in part of the world. And I think Iroko have done a very clever thing. Um, it's going to be available on the Google Play Store. Um, and it's free apparently until uh, the 1st of June. Um, but that 1,500 hours of affordable premium Hollywood content is also creating a pipeline um, from a production perspective. And I think that's also part of the pivot that they're, that they're doing as a business, which I think is clever. But I think the market play as far as Francophone Africa is probably the masterstroke. And in terms of that market size, right? I mean, it's, it's 250 million people across 30 countries on the continent. Um, with this mobile only subscriber play that Iroko's pulling, like you said, great channeled creation for all sorts of other ideas that, um, they're pushing over at Iroko, not least that, as you pointed out, uh, creating their own content and, uh, and monetizing that via their own channels. Um, but yeah, certainly as mobile penetration continues to spread across the continent, and they'd be looking for that app to to cater to that growth. And um, by some estimation, uh, the expectation is at least 165 million smartphones should be in circulation by 2020. It's definitely not a market they can afford to ignore. That said, I do uh, find it interesting uh, uh, them approaching Francophone Africa as one collective as opposed to, you know, uh, market by market, which perhaps language is that is that huge unifier or is it? I, I don't know. I think I think language is the entry point. I think as you learn more and as you're able to land a basic value proposition, you'll start to be able to make it more custom-made for the different uh, countries within that market. But I do think you have to start somewhere, and I think that's a good place to start. Um, incidentally, the, the co-founder has also uh, left uh, Iroko very recently, and I wonder that's, if that's because of the change in strategy. Um, Bastian Gotta, who was a co-founder... Oh, yeah, yeah. He and, um, and Jason started out together. Correct. And he's recently left, and he's obviously gone to... Uh, 
pursue his own interests, but I wonder whether that was as a result of the kind of change in strategy. That could be interesting to, to discuss. It would be interesting to know whether or not he was on board with some of the changes we're seeing over at Iroko. And also, um, I'm almost quite curious, I mean, the next time I bump into Jason or anyone over at Iroko, it would be interesting to know what they, they might be learning in terms of the nuances of, quote-unquote, Francophone Africa and how different uh, or how readily their offerings have been have been received in the 30-odd countries that they're looking to conquer with this offering. Yeah, my understanding is that they're fairly underserviced when it comes to content. So I think they will, well, not content, when it comes to African content. Um, so I think they'll be very well received initially. The challenge, as I've mentioned, will be the pivot to country-specific content from this kind of just broad blanket of uh, francophone, you know, in a basket content. Yeah, and to those of you wondering what the appeal of Nollywood is, well, it is currently the world's second largest film industry in terms of output, and it currently employs in excess of a million people in Nigeria, uh, contributing something like 1% of Nigeria's GDP and growing. And then, of course, there's the, the huge... Uh, the huge appeal of Nollywood content way beyond Lagos, Nigeria, um, into the rest of the world, across the diaspora, really, uh, Nollywood is a thing. And so just to contextualize the opportunity, um, really wishing them the best and, and hoping to see them uh, thrive with this endeavor. And so um, our final um, African story for the week involves an artificial intelligence and machine learning startup called Zinio. Uh, it's a South African business that has recently landed $2 million of investment via a Canadian bank. Now, Zinio is a technology startup based <laughs> in the sleepy village that is Bloemfontein. <laughs> sleepy village, that's uh, that's an understatement. But yes, <laughs> the interesting thing about Bloemfontein is it's also the headquarters for the military. So maybe that's why you'd get an artificial intelligence startup that comes up with something like this. It's true. I hadn't made that connection, though. But um, yeah, certainly based out in Bloemfontein, don't mock. It's, it's, it's a fairly sizable town. Uh, I think it's officially a city, but um, nothing like Johannesburg or Cape Town if you've ever been to South Africa. So it's definitely not the kind of place we would expect, except for what you've pointed out now, Musa, that we'd expect to see some seriously high-tech stuff going down. Now, they specialize in artificial intelligence and machine learning, as I mentioned. They build algorithms that predict uh, potential purchasing behavior. Um, And so... They've got a product called Video Llama, which they describe as a one-stop personal shopping assistant for video streaming. Now, it's actually the potential for this technology they developed via this this platform to be rolled out um, across the world in various other ways um, and the tech being leveraged for, for many different uses. Yeah, and they're hoping to roll it out in the U.S. in the coming months. Yep. Firstly, they need to change the name. So Video Llama, I don't know what that means. But... And, and it's Llama, the, the actual the, the, the animal, Llama, double L-A-M-A. I wonder why they call it that. Yeah, rebranding in order. But anyway, the company was founded in 2014 and has previously developed software that was used to generate traffic via its own shopping comparison website for retail giants such as Amazon, eBay, um, and the rest, and they were operated as an affiliate. So they've made the pivot now for you know that technology and that understanding to become more AI-focused. Yeah, and they're definitely playing to what's easily the biggest growth area in terms of media consumption, digital media consumption um, abroad, which is video. But we certainly wish them all the best. Really, really nice to see something fairly unusual um, get the bucks this time, and certainly in a, quite an unexpected place as far as Bloomberg Day is concerned. So good Good on you, Bloemfontein, and good luck to you, Zinio. 
Absolutely. And we'll be watching closely. I think uh, Canada seems to be making some headway in investing in African startups. So we're also watching you guys. Bring that money over. <laughs> yeah, bring it responsibly, though. Brought to you by... <laughs> Brought to you by the, the, Marxist, the Marxist podcasters. Exactly. No, you know how we do. You know how we do. Bring it responsibly and we'll take the money gladly. <laughs> Quasi-Marxist. We're not all the way there. We're, we're still very much uh, um, uh, capitalist. Um, yeah, just do it right. Yeah, exactly. Do the right thing. Okay, so we're going to close off this episode with some international news. Now, oh, we didn't cover this in the last episode, and uh, we're a bit late to the party. The Uber CEO has resigned, of course, um, TK or Travis Kalanick, but he stays on the board. Uh, yeah, he still you know, owns a big chunk of the business. So I don't know how big that news is. What I did find interesting, though, that I thought was worth sharing with you, and, uh, and and sort of putting to you guys is putting you guys onto a Harvard uh, Business Review article that we read uh, that asserts that regulators ought to shut Uber down because they they basically their position is um, Uber is inherently built on illegality. Sure. Absolutely. And and because they're predicated on illegality, pivoting away from legality to become legal is virtually impossible given where the business is at now. So that Harvard Business Review was actually quite harsh, but it, it, was, it was actually very true to a large extent. In most of the industries that, uh, in fact, in probably all the markets that Uber's gone into, um, they've had to fundamentally kind of break the law, if, whether it comes to regulation or whether it comes to the management of, um, um, of, of taxi or, or, or e-hailing industry um, uh, bodies. So if they're going to be fundamentally a business that has been designed to break the law, the question is, how do you fix that in the future? Um, and uh, his argument is that you can't, and that's the reason why they've got so many lawyers as pretty much their strategy team at Uber. Um, and therefore, the question is, the future of Uber is certainly uh, you know, un- un- uncertain. Um, they also have lots of issues, and which we discussed a few times, around their culture, um, resulting from kind of this old, old boys kind of fraternity type thing um, that's been eating away at the executive structure with the issues they've had with, uh, with gender and equality quality and that kind of stuff. So it just seems like, you know, a business that is fundamentally breaking the law and a culture that is chowing them from the inside. Um, what does the future of, of Uber actually really look like? It's, it looks it looks grim. And look, on the continent, let's be honest, there are a lot fewer rules to break relative to like the, the you know, the volumes and volumes of sort of uh, uh, legislative regimes that exist in in Europe and say America and and I honestly think that if Uber plays its card right in the developing world, not least in Africa, I mean where places like Kenya, for example, are uh, have come out saying, "Listen, um, we won't tax you," or where you know governments like South African regulators are basically you know embracing of the despite sort of the the pushback from from other quarters and other stakeholders within uh, public transport um the government by and large saying listen this is part of the future let's let's work on something i do sense that the developing world might offer uh, the likes of an uber uh, an opportunity to sort of reframe an engagement uh, policy that might suit not just the developing world, but the rest of the world as well. I think it's also part of what influences the likes of VW who are now producing cars in Rwanda, for example, in uh, launching rideshare testing in Rwanda and stuff like that. They probably see our markets on the continent as perhaps a more inviting, less bogged down in regulation and perhaps uh, in a position to benefit more radically than more developed markets where, you know, 
because of protectionism and, and various other things, those societies have far more to lose from the likes of an Uber operating. Yeah, and I think there's also a very interesting ethical argument here is that does the end actually justify the means? You know, I had a conversation with someone this week asking them, you know, what their view was on Uber and, and you know, the first thing they said was, you know, it just solves so many problems for me. It's made life so much easier. And I'm one of those guys. I know it wasn't, we weren't in conversation, but I have to agree. Like, uh, if it came down to a vote, in or out, uh, should we kick them out? Should they, should they die right now? I'd probably vote for them to stay. And that's, that's just a personal sort of uh, selfish uh, assertion but yeah but finish your thoughts yeah and, and and that argument essentially is is founded in you know if the net benefit is actually everybody having a, a much better access to transport um and uh you could potentially argue that the laws that they are breaking are outdated and need to be broken you know so there's a philosophical argument there around are they doing the right thing are they really champions of the custodian and the consumer um you know and and if that is the case then is it okay you know and as you said maybe the opportunity is to reframe um and if that is the op- the, the the positioning, I think it does give them a, a, a high road to a certain extent, but they certainly haven't been using that in, in, in kind of their media approach and their PR. Um, if they were taking the high road of we're on the consumer's side and therefore we're willing to engage to the end that we can make it better for the consumer, it's a different narrative to what we currently see. All we see is kind of these aggressive standpoints, these like scandals about the um, about board emails and that kind of thing, and that just doesn't play well into the narrative that they're seemingly trying to solve a problem that is an issue for a lot of people. Yeah, you certainly get that vibe from the likes of uh, Airbnb who are also playing in this sort of shared economy space. And you certainly get a, a humility, I think is what it is, a humility, a sense of we're here for the public good that you certainly don't get from an Uber. And actually, if you head to africantechroundup.com and go check out episode 43, it's one of our highest rated episodes uh, where we pose the question, should Uber leave Kenya? And we, we had some debate about whether or not, uh, I mean, at the time, I mean, the, the question was certainly being posed in Kenya where, I mean, at, at at the extreme end, you had people saying, listen, our livelihoods are worth far more than this. Um, there's, no, there's no advance in technology that can justify like destroying livelihoods, irreparably d- destroying livelihoods. And of course, I mean, people arguing that, uh, you know, as technology takes over, um, it's not so much that people lose their livelihoods. It's just that they, they, they develop new ones or have to learn new skills and that kind of thing. And there was an interesting debate back and forth that was had in Kenya. And ultimately, we know how that ended up. Um, once it became clear the government was backing Uber, um, Safaricom went ahead and and backed uh, little uh, little cabs, and um, the rest, as they say, is history. So, you know, again, we'd love to hear from you what you think. Do you think that Uber is too broken to be fixed? Is it inherently flawed because they are, as the the uh, Harvard Business Reju- Review, uh, according to Benjamin um, Edelman's article, are they fundamentally based on illegality? What do you think? Give us a shout on. Um, at African Roundup on Twitter or via facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. Len, let's speed right past Amazon buying Whole Foods. The world kind of stopped for that one. <laughs> stopped for a split second, but then we moved on. <laughs> let's get over the fact that uh, Amazon will own, uh, you know, commercial retail, period. So let's just get over that. Yeah, it's going to happen whether we like it or not. Um, once again, let's just make sure that we all get the benefit, <laughs> the net benefit as consumers, yeah.
Speaking of that net benefit, EU antitrust regulators hit Google with a record 2.42 billion euro fine. Um, they've, they've ruled that um, Google has not been playing fair. They've been promoting their own interests and making it fairly impossible for, um, for e-commerce players who they're not affiliated with to actually benefit from the platform. And so, again, to your point, uh, Musa, um, uh, you know, I mean, when when we shared this on our Twitter feed this week, I mean, we we basically shouted out um, African regulators and we're like, stay woke. The EU clearly has a firm idea of what uh, benefit looks like for its citizens in terms of maintaining a competitive landscape and delivering value and not allowing monopolies to develop. The question is, what are we doing on the continent to do the same for ourselves? Absolutely. And this idea of parity is very important because the European Commission um, said, that, said that Google essentially had 90 days to stop favoring its own shopping service, right? Um, because in so doing, they're creating an, an unfair, uh, unfair advantage in the market. Um, and if they don't do so, they, they're kind of going to be fined up to 5% of the alphabet average daily global turnover. So it's a hefty fine, and I think it's a very kind of uh, stern but very, um, uh, what's the word, uh, very deliberate uh, attempt to make sure that there's parity in the market and to keep these big players accountable, which I think is ultimately the important thing. And of course, Google pulling the deny, the deny, deny, deny. We're not, you know, we're not doing anything. They have said they're going to release a full statement, you know, you know, appealing the decision. But yeah, I mean, speaking to the Amazon situation, where I wonder what it will take in terms of like outright domination of e-commerce, for example, or even now brick and mortar retail. You know, for for Amazon to now be considered really uh, an unfairly position business uh, from a monopoly point of view. Yeah, I think the decision is a game changer. Monique Goyens, who's the Director General of the EU Consumer Group, um, says that the Commission confirmed that consumers do not see the most relevant to them on the world's most used search engine, but rather what is best for Google. So understanding that as a fundamental position coming from the DG of the EU from a consumer perspective is a, is a game changer. I think holding them accountable to the extent that we're able now to monitor and make sure that they do the right thing is a, is a really a strong signal to the rest of the market. Um, but I think it's a really it's a big win for us as consumers. I suppose if you are a hardline capitalist, you hate the sound of that because your your argument would be, you know, capitalism inherently benefits everybody because the better some a company like Google does, it just has a knock on effect on the economy, on on job creation, and all sorts of things. And you, you'd be against this decision on principle because you feel that we should be enabling corporate endeavors of any kind to sort of grow and and sort of just trust that the trickle-down effect is going to benefit people on the ground. What do you make of that? So you come out on the show as a capitalist. I'm sort of capitalist, but I mean... That's what hardline capitalism would, would hold. Yeah, I'm a capitalist with the conscience, as I've said. So, I mean, I think, yes, absolutely, the objective here is to make money, to drive bottom line, and to do so, um, uh, you know, w- with as much integrity as possible. But you cannot discount the context in which you live in. You cannot discount the fact that there are consumers who ultimately can be um, misled or led down the wrong uh, the wrong path as a result of your actions. So knowing that, it would be one thing if you didn't know that, but knowing that, you should act accordingly. Um, and pleading the the fifth in the sense that we you know we didn't know or we disagree um, can actually not be tolerated but I do think um, there is a balance to be struck there because ultimately as you're saying technology is meant to be the great kind of equalizer it's supposed to deliver value and you know the socialist in me says yes that's that's right but um, I do think there's a there's a line to be struck capitalism absolutely but capitalism with a conscious is, is probably a better way to look at it
And let's be honest, Google would do just fine. Even if they, they do eventually pay this, I mean, say their appeal fails and they do, I mean, they're not going to feel a pinch in the, in the least. They, I mean, they're so moneyed and um, I feel they're obligated really to, to, to sort of bend over backward and meet society halfway because they're going to make money anyway. Yeah, where does good business uh, end and where does greed begin? You know, that's probably the question. Um, and in a business that's making as much money as Google, are we just now talking about greed? You know, that's probably another philosophical question. But yeah, you're right. I think they, you know, irrespective, Google are going to continue to make money. And in the context of Africa, we need to be asking these questions a lot more because I think that line is a lot clearer here on the continent than it is perhaps in more developed parts of the world. And and it really should be questions we see our regulators um, uh, you know, ask more more frequently, more publicly, more vociferously of some of the larger tech players who come to our shores uh, looking for value. We need to be putting these questions to them and, where necessary, you know, laying down the law as they have in the EU. We never take uh, for granted your listenership. We we love bringing you the show every week, and I certainly love doing it with Musa. And um, well, we'll fit this in wherever we can in order to keep that going. And so, yeah, one last time, many thanks to GoDaddy for sponsoring this episode of the African Tech Roundup. Now, remember that you too can buy your own domain name. You know, just like AfricanTechRoundup.com. Yeah, you could do that yourself. You could also build your own site or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save yourself thirty percent by going to TryGoDaddy.com forward slash African Tech. That's trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. And in case you're wondering, yes, if you use that link uh, and, and, and um, eventually buy, find something of value and buy it from TryGodaddy, we do get a commission. So uh, it was also an indirect way of you supporting our show, um, but also getting a, a hang of a lot of great value from a great company as well. So yeah, in case you're wondering, I've had that question asked before. What do you guys get out of it? Go ahead and do that and we'll love you for it. Musa, we're gonna call it. We're, we're gonna call it. We're gonna call it now. Yes, sir. It's been great as always. It's been fantastic. Thank you for having me back, and I'll see you guys soon. But uh, keep it gully. And well, they're gonna hear you soon. You don't have to see them. Yeah, yeah actually, I won't see you. But yeah, you'll hear from me soon. Hopefully. You can tell this guy used to be on television. <laughs> Very long time ago. Throwback. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll 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 see. I'll hear from you soon, and you'll hear from me even sooner. Um, but it's always been fun, and thank you, Andy, for having me back. Africa Tech family, I really love spending time with you. Thanks, guys. Oh, man, we really do love you, fam. Uh, be sure to join us again for episode 108. That drops soon. Um, as promised, I know I promised this last time, but I've, I've also learned not to promise exactly when things will drop. But you can still look forward to us dropping great conversations that we taped at the fringes of Afrobytes Tech Conference 2017. We've got really, really, really great stuff. There's great video content that we're packaging for you guys. Uh, as soon as it's ready for you, we'll let you know right here. Um, but yeah, stay, stay tuned. It won't go Dale, trust me, it was incredible insight that I was able to glean from that place. Um, yeah, so hang in there. Till the next time, I'm Andy Lemasugu. And I'm Musa Kalenga. Thanks for listening. Do take care, Africa.